It's time to welcome back Dr. Coffee to the program as we hit the holiday season just a week or two away. Thomas Merritt is a professor of natural sciences and a Canada research chair at my old school, Laurentian University in Toronto. He is Dr. Coffee to all of us on the West Coast. He's in the city of Toronto today in a hotel room, coffee in hand, overlooking Lake Ontario. Dr. Merritt, Thomas, good morning, sir, and welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. It's a beautiful morning here. It, it is not often that I'm in a warmer spot than you are, so it's only minus two here, but it's a beautiful minus two. Ah, okay. Well, we're we're struggling here, but I think we're going to make it. That and coffee will be actually a big part of it. Now, I I sent you a story that uh, yeah. I found in the in the Vancouver Sun. Uh, and the headline, Thomas, was uh, it, it's it says basically best to hold off on downing that first cup of coffee. This is a report in which studies show our stress hormones or cortisol levels are elevated when we wake up, and having a coffee first thing in the morning actually boosts those levels, leaving you with what is commonly known to many coffee drinkers around the world with the jitters. So, first of all, uh, what did you think of the report? So it, it, it's super interesting. And if you tie back to the, the, the study and take a look at what they're finding, um, there's, there's definitely a connection there. Um, the science of cortisol is not simple. And, you know, there, there's a reason why cortisol levels fluctuate through the day. It's part of waking you up. Um, I, I will 100% advocate that we need to be conscious of the way that we're consuming coffee. The, the caffeine in coffee is, is a really powerful drug. And I think that mm-hmm. we need to, to acknowledge, you know, how many of us say, I need that cup of coffee. We really want to be at a, at a place where we want that cup of coffee in the morning. It's part of our coffee ritual. Sure. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're getting enough rest. We're getting enough sleep. We've got a healthy diet. And it, it's a want, not a need. And I think the cortisol story plays into that. It, it's all part of this sort of complexity that is our body. Um, and if, if you're pushing too hard and you're needing things like that key caffeine to get up in the morning, uh, take a step back. Mm, interesting. Now, this this cortisol bu- business, uh, Thomas, the stress hormones. Uh, why? Wh- I, I, what I don't understand, and I'm hoping that perhaps you can shed a little light on it. Why, when you first wake up in the morning after you've had a really nice or somewhat decent night's sleep, you wake up, you should feel the adjective is typically refreshed, and all right, of a sudden right. now we we find out that our body is actually uh, has elevated hormones, stress hormones, when we wake up. Okay, so it, it, it is counterintuitive, and I actually scratched my head about this uh, when you first sent me that, that link, and so I looked into a little bit more on cortisol, and it's interesting, if you follow a bunch of stories on cortisol, they often put stress hormone in quotation marks, and mm-hmm. cortisol yes. is involved with stress, but it's involved with other things as well, and that's why I'm saying it's, it's a really complicated system. Um, you know, I, I think we've probably all heard the, the phrase circadian rhythm, right, and, and anybody yes. that, that has either pets or a toddler knows that daylight savings time is, is, you know, it's one of the worst things in the world. And it's because we have these natural rhythms where our bodies wake up at a given time once we've gotten into that pattern. And, you know, trying to convince your Labrador that it needs to sleep in another hour or your toddler that (laughs) there really is another hour. And and so all animals have these rhythms and, and the cortisol cycle is part of that rhythm. So those rhythms, it's not stress. It's, it's this sort of misnomer of a stress hormone. It's part okay. of the normal cycle of, of waking up, going to sleep, waking up. When you push that system too hard, then it's involved with stress. 
And if you have chronically high cortisol levels, that's an indication that something is wrong. The, the idea that the cortisol cycles and it, it is higher in the morning, that's not stress. That's just being, a, and I was going to say a human being. It's not being a human being. It's being a living being because you're right. Labrador and, and, you know, the world around you. The birds wake up on a, on a cycle for the same reason. Actually, I say that. I'm not sure that birds have cortisol. Birds have really weird hormones, so don't quote me on that one. <laughs> um, but it's, it, you know, it, it, it is a, cortisol is involved with stress. But we're not looking at a stress response response necessarily when you wake up. We're looking at just waking up. So uh, if if you, for example, you find that coffee, that first cup of coffee, I'm see, I'm with you on on one of being one of those humans who, frankly, doesn't do well until I've got at least a, one cup of coffee and me just kind of get the eyes open and get going. Right. But if you are, if you are, if you do feel a little off your game or just a little perhaps weirdly stressed when you wake up and yet you still want to go for a blast of java how about a decaf is that a reasonable compromise you know that's an interesting question and, and i when i was looking through some of the studies on cortisol and coffee um, were showing that you get a similar pattern with decaf and what they didn't go into was whether the people they were finding that pattern in are typically caffeinated coffee drinkers because your body will learn to associate the smell of coffee with what's coming next. And, and we are entirely Pavlov's dogs. It, it's the ringing the bell, you start to salivate. Um, right, right. So there is a tie there with the decaf, but I think it probably goes back to the idea that your body knows the caffeine is coming soon. And so you're, you're literally biochemically anticipating what is yet to come. Thomas, I think the smart I, I thing is to ask you. And no, no, I just wanted to ask you about tea as we include this uh, other op- yeah. the other morning option beverage. Does tea have more caffeine than coffee, or is that an urban myth? So tea has about one one-hundredth the amount of caffeine that coffee does. Uh-huh. So caffeine is the other caffeinated beverage. Um, and, it, you know, it's not coincidentally that it buys with coffee as to what's the most consumed beverage in the world. Uh, it has a lot. It is exactly the same caffeine. Uh, it's actually biochemically produced in a different way, which is super cool from a sort of plant evolution perspective. Um, but it's it's much lighter. Um, if you feel like you're being overwhelmed with coffee, a reasonable approach is, you know, I'm going to have a cup of tea. So I'm not going to cut out caffeine, but I'm going to really scale back the amount of caffeine. Um, I, I will tell you from personal experience, I have tried to, to go to cups of tea in the afternoon. Um, uh-huh. and it doesn't work for me. I, I, I can't do it. I go back to coffee. It's the same thing with a decaf. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll go through a couple of weeks of trying to decaf in the afternoon. Like, ah, you know, it's not working. So I, I'm definitely a coffee guy, but there, there is absolutely a place in the world for tea. Interesting. Well, there's a takeaway from this conversation, and there always is. It's about tea and the urban myth that tea contains more caffeine than coffee. I've heard that my whole life, and I've kind of always been a little skeptical about it. So it's nice to hear from a scientist that my skepticism was well-placed. Well-placed indeed. Thomas, Merry Christmas to you. I know it's really early in the month, and perhaps we'll have the opportunity to have you back between now and the big day. But if we don't, thanks ever so much for being one of our most entertaining guests, and we look forward to that next appearance. You know, have a beautiful day, Sterling. It is always fantastic to chat with you. 
Here's a, a new survey conducted by the Harris people for Express Employment Professionals, and this is the opening line. Employee turnover is becoming an increasingly costly problem that continues to plague Canadian businesses still trying to recover and readjust from the COVID-19 pandemic. This uh, survey, uh, brand new stuff, uh, released just recently by Harris and, again, conducted for Express Employment Professionals. Always a pleasure to say hello and welcome back to Vancouver uh, manager, owner of Express Employment Professionals. Brent Paulington is on the line. Brent, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, Brent. You always bring interesting thoughts to the table. And you, this this new survey is interesting stuff. For example, more than one-third of Canadian companies, 35% of them say employee turnover has increased compared to last year when it was down to 25%. That's a, a significant 10% increase year to year, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it's interesting. I know a lot of the previous conversations we've had have talked about the, the disconnect and the skill gap about businesses being able to hire people. And I think this is shedding some light on how the pendulum, so to speak, has swung where many, many years ago it was the employer that had full control and that as an employee you would work for an organization or a company where you had a terrible boss where survival was paramount and that you just did what you had to do. And that, is, that has changed significantly. And, and, and COVID has been, like I said, a huge pendulum that has swung that in further favor for the job seeker and the employee where there's been a lot of ability to kind of control the past. Obviously, in the in the technology age that we're in, the social media gives a lot more open transparency for job seekers and what's being uh, provided to other employees. And so it's created this, uh, you know, they, they call it the great resignation, but I believe it's the great reflection where employees have been looking at what they're doing and, and what their company offers them, uh, whether the commute's a big factor to them, childcare, mm-hmm. all these different factors that, that trigger results in the turnover. And uh, and I think they're just they're just making choices, and and the market is so tough that uh, you know a competitor company will pay someone a, a you know a handy sum to to have them make the change over. So not only is it is it making it hard for companies right now to hire great people, but those really high demand individuals that are able to uh, you know um, that are able to market themselves well uh, are able to make a change, and that 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 turnover is having an even greater impact. Brent, I'm curious what employers are telling you about those individuals who have come become quite accustomed to and quite effective at working from home through this pandemic experience, who now, at the end of it all, are determined to stay working at home, regardless of what the employer wants. Um, how difficult is that for some employers versus others? Yeah, I think what, what I've seen or heard is that the most important thing tends to be a combination of productivity and culture. So I think like if there are people that are able to stay really productive, I mean, I recently interviewed somebody for a webcast that I host who's with a company called Zapier, which is based in the U.S., but they are a 100% remote company. And so there's lots of companies that are going that route and finding that way. I think the great disconnect comes from no matter matter how much you try, you can't, at least not yet, I don't think you can you can create that same environment of having a team that's working together, even if it's in the office once a week or twice a week. Um, and I think that is more of the driver, the goal of the company is less to have the, the microscope and the micromanagement piece, but more of the understanding that there is huge value. Uh, and, and I think it's a turnover combatants where, 
where if culture is one of those critical pieces that keeps people connected to a company, how do you create that deep connection and tie-in when the person's 100% removed and the yeah. only you know, a, a visibility they get on culture is the odd Zoom connection with another team member or manager? Mm-hmm. And you point out in the, in the survey you released uh, recently, uh, there was a news uh, press release attached and you're quoted in the press release. And, and the quote that you're attributed to, at least, is, quote, the other main cause of turnover is lack of leadership and poor company culture, close quote. And that's what you were just addressing, the fact that uh, the, the company culture needs to change to accommodate different workplace attitudes and that as long as the productivity level remains the same, the company is is able to function so some somewhere in the leadership group which directs the culture there needs to be a rethink are you seeing that happening yeah a hundred percent and i think it's really interesting we get to see like a lot of the positive and negative come out of the tech space so you saw you know many many well years ago that they're they would have, you know, the pool tables and foosball and the masseuses and sushi yeah. chefs and all these things coming out of Silicon Valley. Right. And, and as a result, all these companies all across North America had then shifted their mindset going, we need to do everything we can to engage our employees, to do more than just the physical, you know, dollars that we're going to pay them to create these great cultures, to, to, to anchor people who are going to want to stay at our company. And at the same time, all those things get tied into the bottom line. And we're now seeing, I mean, this year, I think it's 250,000 or close to 300,000 people in the, in the tech industry through Canada and the U.S. have been laid off. Yes. So we're starting to see this shift where these companies have done exorbitant things from a culture perspective. They've overpaid their employees to attract the top talent. And mm-hmm. now that pendulum is swinging back and negatively impacting people where we're seeing layoffs, at, you know, three weeks away from Christmas and, and all these different things. And so I think culture will always, and especially now because of this, this like social world that we live in where the companies that do amazing things, it gets shared and the companies who don't, uh, that gets shared as well. Uh, and, and that information is more readily available, which gives employees more ability to make informed decisions, which many, many years ago they didn't have. Brent, uh, just by, we're almost out of time, but by, by way of talking about you earlier in the show, I was saying that typically a company it takes anywhere from six to 12 months when they bring a new person on site to, to train that person up to the place, up to the point where they are a, an effective team member able to deliver at the productivity level the company expects. Is that a reasonable six to 12 months before you're finally plugged in and really good to go? Is that average? Yeah, I, I would say it would be, you know, shorter for, for you know, more uh, like entry level positions, of course, like three months is probably where you can get somebody to really be an impactful performer. But as you go up the professional ladder, absolutely. I mean, six months to a year. And that's, you know, to get someone up to speed, maybe not yeah. necessarily where the company starts to see the return on the investment, which is obviously what the, the business is looking for. Yeah, Brent, a final question to you, because you've alluded to it already, and it's, I'm going to come back to it because it's important for workers looking at the tech sector and seeing these massive layoffs from really big, big billion-dollar companies. What message should they take from that and apply in their own workplace, if any? Yeah, I would say that you need to continuously be in seek of constant personal and professional development. Keep honing your skills, keep educating yourself, and don't uh, don't assume that you've plateaued or that you're at the peak. 
Um, and, and be careful. I mean, as the employee, there's sometimes no control. It could be that the company's done everything they could and it's a last resort. And it's, it's sometimes the nail in the coffin for the business, uh, and that you need to protect yourself. So maybe always having like a good professional LinkedIn profile done up and, and, uh, yeah, I would just, you know, always plan for the worst. Yeah. Brent, always a pleasure. We do appreciate your getting up early on a Sunday morning to share this important information with us. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Some great, great questions. The government knows that gang-related crime is through the roof, but their proposed regulation targets the wrong people and misleads Canadians about the perpetrators of gun crime, says the BC Wildlife Federation. They also add, gangsters don't follow the rules, so more rules aren't going to address the problem. We're talking about Bill C-21. This is the mandatory buyback program for so-called assault-styled firearms, weapons. Here to talk more about it from the BC Wildlife Federation Recreational Shooting Committee is Doug Bancroft. Mr. Bancroft joining us from Victoria today. Doug, good morning and welcome. Uh, Good morning, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Uh, by the way, I should add one more quote to our uh, our uh, conversation here, Doug, just before we get underway, because Justin Trudeau, frankly, doesn't really care what the BC Wildlife Federation has to say about anything when it comes to his gun laws. He cares more about Toronto and Montreal. So here's one from Montrealer today. I love my family. I love my country. And I care about my neighbor. I am not a criminal or a threat to society. What Justin Trudeau is rather is trying to do is unfair. I support the coalition to keep my hunting tools. This quote this morning from the goaltender of the Montreal Canadiens, BC boy, no less, Carey Price. Now, Justin Trudeau isn't going to listen to you, but he will listen to Carey Price. You think that might make a difference? I don't think it'll make a difference, but I will say go Habs go. (laughs) <laughs> and they're here tomorrow, too. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about this buyback, Doug, and what's the main beef with the BC Wildlife Federation? Well, well first of all, I'd like to correct something. <clears throat> the government never owned my hunting rifles or my twenty-two plinking guns, my target guns. Um, they decided that they're going to take a number of firearms away from me. To date, only one of them they claim they're going to have a... they're going to confiscate, but with compensation. Everything else that they say they're going to take away from me eventually or as fast as they can organize it, they have offered no compensation for. And the compensation price they quoted for one of my target rifles um, was about half the market value. But I don't want to sell it, and they never own it. So the terminology uh, buyback is factually incorrect. Well, again, this don't forget, though, this this is all about placating urban Canada. Montrealers, Torontonians, Ottawans, all of these people are convinced in the major cities, especially back east, that guns of any description are simply bad and wrong. And that's the crowd that votes for Justin Trudeau. He wants to get reelected. Those are the people he's catering to. Doesn't really care about people like you. Doesn't even care about the people he's uh, placating to. The reality is, is that when they continue to spend billions of dollars on this program or types of programs like this, those are tax dollars that aren't going into things that could actually accomplish stuff. It's also diverting uniformed and non-uniformed police from dealing with the issue as they deal with the logistics of trying to bring millions of firearms in, account for them, and then destroy them. 
All that activity is a meaningless squander of money and time. This is why the chiefs of police, this is why the police unions, including the RCMP unions, have been against these type of programs from the beginning. It's going to not improve situations in downtown Vancouver, Toronto, or Montreal. Sure. In fact, it, it, it actually makes it worse in that things that could be done can't be done because the resources aren't at the front line. Does it surprise you or has it surprised you at all, Doug, that uh, various provincial governments, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta being the prominent ones at the, to date, have decided that they're not going to authorize their police forces province-wide to participate in the buyback program? Was that welcome news from where you're sitting? It was certainly welcome news, and I was surprised by how rapidly they are willing to deploy legislation in support of that stance. Um, any province that actually cares about fighting crime would be doing the same thing. And that includes British Columbia. Our new premier has talked about he wants to get tough on crime. Good on him. But is he willing to do something like Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and where the Yukon might be going as well? So then if these jurisdictions refuse to cooperate with the buyback program, where does that leave a person, say, a licensed, fully uh, certified uh, gun owner, hunter type in one of these provinces where they could st- technically still have their, their uh, weapons seized, but they kind of relax a little because they know the, uh, at least the constabulary isn't interested in playing that game? Well, it puts them in limbo, but it also takes the property that they have and uh, renders it useless. In other words, the, uh, the firearm that someone might be taking out of their safe next fall or last fall uh, to go deer hunting on Vancouver Island, um, they don't know where they stand. We, we, we don't see where the regulations are. Right. I own a rifle. It's a non-restricted rifle, which means I should be able to take it into the woods to hunt deer, but we don't know what the rules are. So when do you expect any clarification, if ever? Well, the order in council that, uh, that uh, prohibited um, and was going to force them to force me to give it to the government for them to give me a nominal sum of money for, it's been almost 20 months now, and we haven't heard anything about how it's going to be implemented operationally. Um, so uh, the overall incompetence of this government uh, is not just in the firearms files, of course, um, but... Uh, it's, uh, it, it could be many years before this resolves, assuming it gets passed. Um, frankly, the only w- uh, they, they seem very intent on passing this as amended, uh, without consultation, without any useful feedback. The idea that um, taking a plinking 22 out of my safe, and that's one of the ones they want, um, is somehow going to reduce violent crime in Toronto or Vancouver. It's a fairy tale. Yeah. Doug, take a second, if you would, please, sir, and remind our listeners this Sunday morning of the hoops that one must dance through in order to receive a firearms certificate anywhere in Canada this weekend. If you want to uh, go into uh, recreational sport shooting or hunting, on the firearms perspective, you have to take a two-full-day course, which is theoretical and hands-on, both in terms of the safety of handling firearms, but also the processes, rules, and regulations. Then you go into a criminal records check, um, and then that is updated daily. So if you've got a possession and acquisition license, the system automatically grinds through crimes that are committed in Canada, people are arrested, courts and things like that, and it can be mm-hmm. snatched away at any time. Um, it, uh, 
it requires, if, you, if you're married, for example, when you get it, and when you get it um, every five years, you have to apply and have it renewed. Okay. Uh, your spouse has to. Your spouse, if you have a spouse, has to sign off on it as well. Um, it's a. Uh, frankly, it's a uh, people who have firearms licenses in Canada are far less likely to be criminals and committing crimes. Well, I think, you know, again, those who aren't in direct contact or who just guns are never a part of their life or their life experience don't perhaps understand how, how, how what a commitment it is for an individual who wants to become, say, a sports shooter or a recreational hunter or whatever. The, 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 the paradigm or the, the uh, complexity of uh, obtaining that firearms acquisition certificate is significant. And I don't think uh, non-gun people have an appreciation of, of what uh, recreational and sports shooters go through in Canada just to be able to participate. Um, yes, although the number of people who have been getting firearms licenses over the last decade has been rising significantly. Um, and, and frankly, going back to the Habs, um, there's an order of magnitude more people who practice recreational shooting sports than practice hockey as a recreation in Canada. Hmm. It is a much larger part of the Canadian cultural fabric going back for hundreds of years than the majority of people in Canada actually understand. Interesting. So again, this is, and of course, it is a, a rather, and not in any more very much, except I would imagine in some parts of uh, of rural Canada, but it is a, a, a Canadian tradition. It's part of the fabric of the nation, isn't it? It is. And, and it's not just rural Canada. Here in southern, here in Greater Victoria, um, population of Greater Victoria is approximately 300,000 people. Um, the Victoria Fish and Game, uh, which I'm president of, has 5,000 members. And there's three other uh, uh, shooting clubs in Greater Victoria. Approximately one out of every 70 people in Victoria shoot recreationally and or hunt. Mm. We have produced gold medal pistol champions like Linda Tom from Ontario. Right. Uh, We've got, uh, we have, we have, it is part of our culture. Um, Yeah. And and there's something even more disturbing about this Bill C-21. they are going to seize private property from millions of Canadians across Canada, and again, without compensation, not because there's any evidence to support it. It is being done, as you said, to placate a certain large voting group. Right. Now, what prevents them from doing the same thing with regulations or law anytime they want? I'll give you an example. No one needs a car that can drive 150 kilometers an hour. And road safety is a problem in Canada. So hypothetically, the government could decide that they're going to ban any car that can hit 150 or more. Mm. And they're going to take those cars that are already in Canadians' hands and remove them without compensation. Or as I like to say, theft. But it's a legal theft. There's no difference in terms of the law. If this law stands, then, well, nobody really needs a V10 pickup truck for personal use, Right. And we're dealing with climate change. So why don't we take away everybody's V10 pickup trucks and start there without compensation? And you can just say that nobody needs a 10,000-foot house at a time when housing is a critical issue in the lower mainland. So Mm. the government will seize those, give them over to co-ops without compensation. There's no difference in what they're doing. It's theft. And it's you said not, if this if this bill passes, is it is it a done deal? Is it is it not already law, Doug? No, the, if it stands. Bill, bill, this, the Bill C-21 is uh, going through a third review uh, and then, then Senate and then Royal Assent. 
But when it right, becomes right, law, okay. it's a precedent where the government can just steal your property, but not for a good reason. A made so up- is there a court challenge in the works, Doug? Several. Uh, they were for the order in council that precedes this approximately 20 months ago, and I have no doubt there will be court challenges going through with this as well. But again, the courts, are bu- the courts should be busy dealing with real important things of consequence. Well, this actually has consequence now. But again, it's like people, well, I'll make it about myself. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather, um, a husband. I have a 38-year decorated veteran. Um, I'm now operating a company as president that does high technology around the world, um, employing people. These types of people, including goaltenders, your neighbors, are the ones that are being attacked by the government. And by attack, I mean they're stealing our stuff. And if it was going to improve public safety, I'd actually say, okay, I think I think violent crime is actually a problem right now. Um, uh, we would, but it's not to do with public safety, as you say. It's all about politics. It's and all it about getting that. reelected. All about yep. getting reelected. We're out of time, but I am very grateful for yours, and I do appreciate the uh, intensity of your opposition to this uh, particular legislation. We'll talk because there will be court challenges, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks for today, Doug. Thank you very much for this opportunity, sir. Uh, it's time to talk health care with Shirley Bond, the uh, liberal, uh, the opposition health critic, former interim party leader, joining us this morning from Prince George, where it's minus 18 and a whole lot colder than the minus two we have down here in Vancouver. Shirley, good morning and thanks for joining us. Always a pleasure, Sterling. Good to have you with us. Let's talk a little bit about in terms of health care action plan. And I'm on the B.C. Liberal website here. It's yes. time for a real plan to tackle this crisis and make sure our health care system is there for people when they need it. And you go on to identify a series of initiatives mm-hmm. you would you would look at and introduce. And one of them, and this is a big one these days, is talking about increasing the ability of foreign trained medical professionals to integrate into the Canadian system here in BC. How would you go about that differently from what they do now? Well, one of the things, Sterling, is that we're very concerned that there is a seeming lack of urgency in dealing with the crisis in healthcare. And so you're right. We called for a series of steps months ago. Recently, we've seen the government take some steps uh, related to international uh, medical graduates. One of the most uh, uh, speedy ways that we could help bring additional support to the system is by looking at uh, welcoming back particularly Canadians who want to come home, uh, people who have been trained in, in, uh, in exceptional schools in the United States or Ireland. And so you need to do that by increasing the residency spaces. That is incredibly important. We, we have 56 at the moment. We need to move that up substantially. Uh, we need also to look at things like increasing training spaces over time, expanding the practice-ready uh, assessment. There are tools we have that we can right. use to make it speedier. So uh, is the is the lack of using those tools to the extent that you would see them, is that a political decision or an economic decision, Shirley? Well, I think that's a great question. I think the fact of the matter is we called for this months ago, and recently we've seen some steps taken in that direction. And our concern is that was a waste of months and months as we look for ways to try to provide uh, new uh, help in the system. You know, people in the healthcare system are incredible, and they've been 
holding it together and doing their very best. But even just yesterday, you know, we saw a temporary code orange at BC Children's Hospital. Those are the kinds of things that should not happen in British Columbia. So we need to see a greater sense of urgency and some very specific actions in the short term. And then looking at what it's going to take to have the healthcare professionals we need over the longer term as well. And one of those healthcare professional groups, surely, right now has a very dramatic uh, media campaign underway. And I'm talking about BC nurses and their television commercials, which feature a, a young nurse going through or trying to go through her daily routine and being interrupted by the sorts of things and stresses that nurses face in BC hospitals every day. Uh, if you don't know about what they deal with, uh, the ad mm-hmm. is quite striking and you really do pay attention. So what's your response to the the the, the point being made by the nurses that there just simply aren't enough of us. Well, that's certainly the case. And those ads are uh, a portrayal, as you point out, of what happens every day in hospitals. People may think that that's drama. It's not. Yeah. I hear from nurses across this province every single day about how overworked they are, how difficult things are in hospitals across this province. Let's face it, we have ERs that are overflowing. We have uh, hospitals, uh, emergency rooms on diversion. We have closures. You know, we need to make sure that we are training and adding nursing spaces, but we also need to make sure we're compensating nurses uh, properly. And we, we need to look at the culture and safety element in hospitals today. And nurses talk about, you know, making sure that they get to work in a safe Uh, environment. And that's one of the biggest Mm -hmm. issues that we have continually raised with government. It's a very, very troubling situation for our nurses. What are you going to do about burnout? Uh, And it's not just nurses, there are technicians, there are doctors, pretty much across the full Mm -hmm. spectrum of healthcare delivery professionals because of the intensity of the last two years. Uh, My Mm -hmm. own personal family physician retired halfway through the pandemic. He just tilt, that was it, gone. And mm-hmm. we're seeing more of it all the time. How are you going to address burnout? Well, it's going to be, you know, it is a very complex issue. And I, for one, I'm not pretending that it's a simple fix. But we do need to look at things like uh, appropriate compensation, making sure that we have a culture where uh, people feel safe and included in the decision-making processes. Those are very important. One of the things that healthcare professionals say to me all the time is we want to feel valued for our work. We want to to have that sense of inclusion in this process. So we've seen some important steps after a lot of delay, looking at how we compensate family physicians, for example. Your situation is the same as so many others. We have people choosing to leave family practice. We need to make sure that we're providing uh, support, for example, for the overhead costs, which are so difficult. You know, family physicians, many of them have to run a small business as well as take care of their patients. We need to make that easier for them. And those are the kinds of things that will help rebuild morale and uh, create a place where people want to choose family practice in this province again. Shirley, one of the criticisms of the Canadian healthcare system, not just BC, but our Canadian healthcare system, is the percentage of non-healthcare professionals involved. In other words, a, a an unnecessary degree of bureaucrats within the system. You take a look at Germany versus Canada. Germany, twice our population, delivering essentially the same type of healthcare with for every one bureaucrat 
in Canada, I'm sorry, for every one bureaucrat in Germany with twice our population, there are seven in Canada. That would su- suggest a rather bloated bureaucracy within healthcare that may, these people don't deliver healthcare, they're push paper. How are you going to deal with that? Well, we've raised that issue, in fact, in the legislature. You know, we took a look at the number of vice presidents and uh, across the system in British Columbia, and it was a very significant number. And when you look at the salaries of those people, um, you know, certainly we need to have a strong administrative component, but we also need to remember our focus should be on patients and frontline healthcare workers. And so we need to look and always constantly reassess where is the investment going and how are our taxpayer dollars being spent. You know, the other thing that we simply have to call the government out on is, you know, we recently discovered that they are sitting on a $5 billion surplus. Well, right, yeah. I, would su- I would suggest that we need to start focusing on health care. Yes, there are other needs, of course, when it comes to crime and to housing, all of those areas are desperately in need of, of, of uh, you know, uh, more investment as well. But healthcare, it's the heart of caring for people in British Columbia. So we need to start reinvesting. We need to take it seriously. You know, when John Horton was premier, even he admitted that the system was crumbling. And we now have a new premier who has said virtually nothing about health care. He finally did an announcement, I think it was last weekend. Um, but we, we really need to see that sense of urgency. This is about caring for families and children across British Columbia in the way that they deserve. So there's a lot more to be done, Sterling. Mm-hmm. Shirley, final question to you. It has nothing to do with health care. When, when do you go for the name change? When do the B.C. Liberals become B.C. United? Will you do that before the next election? Well, uh, first, we have the next step. We have to deal with, obviously, the Constitution, and we're going to be dealing with that very early in January. I can tell you there is a real sense of renewal and excitement about the name change passed very significantly. I know my riding here, the people here are very excited. So we have some technical pieces to take care of. We're also going to look at the timing of that. You know, we have to, if David Eby were to call a snap election, uh, you know, we have some things we have. Yeah, it's certainly looking like it with the way he's running around making uh, announcements every day. Um, so we have to take that into consideration as well. But you know what? As someone who's a longtime, uh, you know, member of this party and, and someone who's been a cabinet minister and an MLA, I'm excited about the future with Kevin Falk. And we had a great, great process involved. He said he was going to do it. He did. And we're going to move forward with the technical pieces to put that name change in place. Shirley Bond, thanks so much for being with us today. Stay warm in chilly Prince George. (laughs) All right. Well, it's actually warmer than it has been, so I'm celebrating, Sterling. Take care down there. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.